I'm Charlotte Bates, and this is a podcast for Social Research Methods, a podcast about interviews. Today, I'm talking with Professor Robert Evans. Rob's research focuses on the nature and use of expertise. This translates into questions about the sorts of knowledge needed to make decisions, who possesses it, and how it is shared and acted upon. Rob convenes a specialist methods module on focus groups and interviews, so he's a great person to talk to about making sense of interviews today. And of course, this is sort of an interview now. Rob, can you start by telling us a bit more about your research? Yeah, sure. Um, so my research is primarily in the field of sociology of science. And so what we're really interested in is trying to understand how scientific work gets done and quite often how scientific controversies get resolved. Um, and interviews turn out to be quite a useful method for that, because if you've got a, a scientific controversy or a debate going on, then you've got several different groups of people all arguing different things. And so you don't want to um, position yourself within one of the labs or one of the teams. Um, you need to kind of move around them and get a sense of what all the different um, participants are saying at roughly the same time in the controversy. So interviews rather than ethnographies um, are a much more viable and sensible method for doing that kind of research because it allows you to visit each of the different labs or each of the different participants or each of the different um, social movements, whoever happens to be involved in the controversy, um, relatively frequently and relatively quickly in order to try and keep an overview of what's going on um, all at once. So, I mean, to give a quick example, my PhD research was about economic forecasting, which is notoriously controversial and they never agree about anything. Um, and what I did was I interviewed a panel of, inter, um, of economic forecasters. There were seven of them um, and they met every um, every four months. And so I used to interview well, each of them after each of their meetings. And I did that for about a year and a half. And so within the space of two weeks, I would interview all seven economists and get a sense of why their forecasts differed, the areas that they were, the, they were similar and how then the, the policy recommendations kind of converged and differed as a result of that. So how does interviewing experts uh, differ from any other kind of interview? Um, I'm not entirely sure that it does. Um, there are certainly, um, it, you know, the interviews that I've done would certainly fit into that category of elite interviewing or, or interviewing up in as much as the people um, that I've, I interviewed for the PhDs were all um, professors of economics um, or, or similar kind of people. And certainly in some of my other projects, we've been looking at people who are senior transport planners or um, energy modelers and so on. Um, and I suppose what that does that um, might be different, but I think shouldn't be, is it puts you on your guard and makes you slightly nervous about interviewing these people because you think, my gosh, this is an expert. I've really got to know my stuff before I go and speak to them. And so it makes you... Um, very conscientious I guess in your in your preparation because you don't want to look like an idiot um, where I'm less sure that that's really different is I think you probably owe all your interview participants the same degree of respect and anxiety and so even if you were just interviewing um, you know the person next door about their life in your your local community in a sense you're treating them as an expert on their local community on their life on their experience and you owe them the same kind of duty of care and and preparation to be you know on time um, to be prepared to have your interview guide worked out to know what your questions are going to be to know what your prompts are going to be 
um, and to make the interview a, a worthwhile um, experience for, for both of you in a sense. Mm-hmm. But it does um, it does foreground that anxiety, I think, in a way that perhaps interviewing people who you think of as being more ordinary doesn't. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, have you got any other kind of practical tips on preparing for interviews? Um, well, I think it is. I mean, to some extent, it depends on, on what you're doing. Um, but I think preparation um, is the key in trying to sort of anticipate how the um, the interview might go to do some kind of pre-research so that you've got a whole sort of set of possible prompts and questions and things to follow up on um, to keep the conversation going. So for the PhD interviews, for example, I went to um, a whole series of lectures. On, I, I, I went to two, two university courses where I went to first year macroeconomics course while I was doing my PhD to get a sense of what the basic theories these people were using were. And then I also went to a sort of final year economic modeling um, set of lectures as well to get a sense of the um, techniques that they were using. Not that I ever really mastered any of it, but to get a sense of what these people were doing. So I kind of knew enough to ask a question. Um, so I think certainly I'm either, you know, in the scientific case, it's relatively straightforward. You have to read around the, the controversies or the, the research that's going on in more sort of mundane settings. And I think you do have to read around the social covers that sort of topic to get a sense of what kinds of issues might be raised um, because it's not always the case that people will raise them spontaneously um, so sometimes you have to pose a sort of devil's advocate kind of question um, to prompt them into saying why it's not the case that such and such um, is important um, because really what you're trying to do in an interview is, you, is you're trying to do two things I think one is that you're trying to um, learn to understand the world from the participants perspective so you're trying to get to the the point where you're able to almost anticipate the answers that they might give to the questions that you ask um, but to do that you've really got to know a lot about about their lives and their worlds and although they're going to give that to you um, through the interview it's helpful if you've done at least some of the groundwork in advance so you can kind of take the conversations the more interesting more nuanced more, more difficult kinds of questions quite quickly um, and avoid um, them kind of feel feelings of either that they're not telling you stuff or worse that they're telling you stuff that you should already know so I do remember in my PhD one one of the people I've I, um, I interviewed saying to me well you can get this out of a textbook you know um, and it was clear that he felt that I was kind of wasting his time really by asking these essentially stupid questions that I could have found out the answer to before I'd taken the time to go to London and speak to him. And certainly he didn't feel it was the best use of his time to be telling me stuff that I could get out of any economics textbook. So you've got to try and do your homework so that you, you're pitching your, your interview discussion at the right kind of level um, so that everybody feels that they're, they're getting something out of it and that they're not, they're not wasting their time. Mm. So that kind of leads me on to ask you um, what you can get out of an interview that you can't get out of a textbook or, or through reading or through an ethnography. Um, well, I suppose there are several different things there, aren't there? I think for me, when thinking about interviews, the, um, and, and participatory or qualitative methods in general, the, the thing that you're trying to get is um, 
is tacit knowledge and tacit knowledge is sort of knowledge that you have um but it's not not necessarily written down and you can't necessarily explain how you um how you came to acquire it so tacit knowledge is the sort of thing that the the ethnomethodologists are very good at um drawing our attention to so an example of tacit knowledge is for example if you if you're um walking through the supermarket and you've got stuff in your trolley even though you haven't paid for it you know it's your stuff and you also know that you shouldn't go and take stuff out of somebody else's trolley and put it in your trolley even though technically it's not theirs because they haven't paid for it yet so tacit knowledge is how do you know those kinds of those kinds of rules that regulate our lives and inform our actions even though they're not really written down anywhere and are only really revealed um through um either their actual breaching or they kind of imagined breaching in the in, in the example I've just given. And so in answer to your question about textbooks, that's what you get from um, interviews that you don't get from textbooks, at least if the interview is going well, I suppose. And that's the challenge with doing interviews well, is to um, ensure that you're not getting a kind of PR version of events, but you are actually both encouraging and prompting and to some extent forcing um, them to tell you how things actually are not necessarily how they think they ought to be represented and that's where your your sort of background homework um, is important because you need to be able to somehow spot that that PR talk um, and challenge it and dig beneath it and get them to reflect um, more critically I guess on, on what they actually do and that's where the idea of preparation and showing that you know what you're talking about is important. Um, so that, I think, is how it differs from, from the textbook. Um, it's less clear to me how it differs from ethnography. I think you can gain very similar levels of, of understanding through both ethnography and, um, and qualitative interviews. And I don't really by the distinction that, that some people make between um, ethnography or anthropology, um, in some sense, accessing or giving, giving you access to a more, um, more authentic understanding because it's there and it's experienced and it's um, naturalistic and, and those kinds of um, adjectives that we hear, uh, which is then contrasted with the artificiality of the formal sit down, um, you know, recorder on a table, kind of interview where you know apparently all you're able to get is that some sort of occasional discourse that tells you nothing about what goes on outside the room i'm not really sure that 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 is the case um i think it can be the case if you do interviews badly mm. um but i think if you do interviews well if you've prepared properly that you um see them as part of a a learning curve and part of a sequence of interactions through which you're seeking to understand how the lives of members of a particular community are are organized and held together what their um, their rules um, and norms are how they're justified how they're enforced how they're breached and so on i think you can get um, a very very similar level of understanding it's clearly the case that um, ethnography in some cases makes that a little bit easier to do just because the bandwidth of ethnography is so much wider you know you're there you can see things you can touch them you can have a go so you've got lots more um modalities i suppose for for learning things 
um, and interviews in that sense, the, the bandwidth is a bit is a bit narrower. Um, and so you've got to work a bit harder um, at your talk in order to make sure you access as much of that information as possible. Um, but I think you can get a lot out of learning, um, in a sense, the language that people use to understand and recount um, and explain their, their practices. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I think that has to be the case. Otherwise, in social science, we're in real trouble. Because if you end, you know, if we take the, the ethnography point too far and say, well, you can only understand um, you know, things that you have experienced directly, groups that you have participated in directly, um, where do we set the limit for what that kind of participation means? I mean, are we seriously suggesting that criminologists have to commit crimes in order to be criminologists? And I don't think we are saying that. And I certainly don't want to suggest that. But then if we're saying that they don't have to do the practice in order to achieve the understanding, how then do we explain whatever understanding is generated? And my argument would be, well, we explain that understanding through saying that what the criminologists have done is that they've learned the language that their participant groups use to describe their experiences, to understand their world, and by learning and being able to reproduce that discourse, that learn, that understanding, they've generated um, a worthwhile, decent, authentic understanding of those practices. And the evidence of that is the way in which they're able to talk about it in ways that the participants themselves recognise as valid. So it seems to me you can get quite a lot out of an interview if you take it seriously, if you do it carefully, um, and if you're well prepared. That seems like a pretty good argument for keeping interviews in our range of methods. I think so, yes. Um, and obviously there's more, there are more mundane things as well, to be fair. So beginning with the sociology of science, um, if you've got, uh, a, you know, most of my projects have been involved, and I think most social science projects have this, this flavour to them. Um, you're trying to um, look at different, different perspectives. Um, so whether it's um, you know, two or three different groups of scientists arguing about how to interpret an experiment or some of my other stuff has been around um, you know, transport planning. So obviously you've got citizens groups, you've got the council, you've got the energy companies, you've got a whole range of different groups. Again, you wouldn't get necessarily, um, you'd get a very different kind of understanding from doing a six month ethnography of just one of those groups compared to a six-month interview project in which you rotated regularly around and through all those different groups. So to some extent, it's it's sort of horses for courses as well. But I think if you want to, if you've got a project with multiple social groups with competing perspectives and you're trying to understand how they interact, I think interviews are a good way of understanding all the different arguments that are being brought um, to the table, even if it is sometimes a little bit confusing then for the sociologists, but probably in a good way. Um, because if it's going well, when you're speaking to each group, you should be thinking, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Of course. How could it be any different? And then you go speak to the next group and that worldview gets completely turned upon its head. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, but of course, it's got to be like that, hasn't it? And I think that that then has a real advantage for um, doing the analysis as well in a funny kind of way, because it helps you see how views are constructed it helps you see how things could be otherwise because the participants themselves are telling you exactly how things could be otherwise and why claims that sound ever so reasonable when they're made by one group of people 
look completely implausible when they're evaluated from the perspective of, of somebody else. So in some ways, interviews also do a lot of your analytic work for you as well. If you're um, you know, prepared to go with the flow and listen to what people are saying openly and then try and understand why it is that point of view makes sense to them. I think that's a really important point that you have to choose the right method for the for the job, um, but also to be aware that different methods will will show you different things. Thank you.